Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Does your tight schedule prevent you from sitting down with your Bible? Do you sometimes find the Bible confusing? The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study with the church, past and present. It's hosted by Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Pastor Will Whedon. Learn more at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. An evangelical and Catholic podcast, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Hello, listeners. This is Rusty Reno at the editor's desk for our regular podcast with First Things Authors. And I have with me today Jim Keating, Providence College. We're going to talk about his article, Who Killed a Catholic University from the April 2023 issue. Thanks for being on the podcast, Jim. Oh, happy to be here. So, who? You you kind of begin with this Nietzsche echo evocation, and of course the madman says we have killed God in that case, and you're suggesting that all of us have somehow killed the Catholic University. How so? Well, those with power killed it. the 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 mad the, the mad person, the person who's gone mad, was the faithful Catholic intellectual who had. <laughs> put their career on the line in order to teach at a place which embodied the Catholic intellectual tradition and the unity of faith and reason. But when things went southward in the late 60s, they watched, they protested, but they had no power. Uh, and so it drove them mad. Part of the story <laughs> I wanted to tell was the story of that generation um, who was prepared and willing to teach uh, you know, do Catholic education at you know at the college and university level, but they watched as the whole thing, more or less. There are some exceptions, obviously, but more or less came unraveled. So you build a piece around ex corde ecclesiae, uh, John Paul II's. Um, what, what's the status of that document? Apostolic Constitution. Apostolic Constitution. That he issued in was it ninety one or ninety two? I can't remember. I think it's ninety one. I don't know. And I remember I was a young professor at Creighton University, and it was uh, it was a big deal when he came out. Oh yeah. And John Paul II wanted to put Catholic education back on a sound theological footing, I suppose. What what are the main thrusts of ex corde? Well, ex corde is a, is a constitution, therefore it's, it really is a legislative document. It looks forward to legislation uh, in, in, the local, in the local churches. And what it wanted to do, as you said, was reanimate, after a turbulent decades after the council, this notion of what a Catholic university could do. In the, in the only, only in the United States do we use the word college for the kind of you know, non-doctorate uh, early places, but the, um, he, wanted to, he wanted to bring it back, to reanimate it. He knew it was in some trouble, and he spelled out a number of things that that's, that's colleges or schools could do, 
wanted to restore what he called this uh, sort of institutional Catholic ethos. Uh, he thought of it, as all Catholics always do, in the terms of an institution. And he wanted the institution to sort of re reanimate itself to this love of uniting faith and reason. And it, and you said it, it, um, it looked forward to legislation, or it, that John Paul II wanted the bishops, in effect, to yes. uh, take leadership in trying to get Catholic uh, universities to re-engage their, their, well, re-engage the fullness of their mission, as I suppose you would right. say. Right. There were two basic thrusts of that. One is to think of the local ordinary as not external to the university, but somehow internal. Uh, they, you know, they were careful on how they phrased that, but that, as you remember, caused tremendous um, uproar. And the other part was to ask, and it's very small, really, is to ask theologians to um, receive a mandatum from the bishop, which would entitle them somehow to, you know, sort of be a trustworthy teacher of Catholic, Catholic doctrine. Mm. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the American history of the American Catholic universities, the turmoil over that first that first uh, expectation that the bishop would be internal, that ran counter to the Land of Lakes statement from the late 60s, which, as I think of it, it's the Catholic University's Declaration of Independence from Ecclesiastical Authority. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. I mean, they, they thought in terms of autonomy, right? That the, the universities have a rightful autonomy, which, by the way, is acknowledged an ex corde in order to do their work. But their idea was that what's holding, what Land O'Lakes is, their, really their central notion is what's holding a Catholic higher edu education back from ascending the heights, you know, Harvard and Yale and that kind of thing, uh, was this idea that it was somehow under the, these schools were somehow under the control of the bishop. Now that wasn't actually true, but it was the perception. And it did happen. There were some notorious cases, uh, notorious as in everyone talked about them, of you know sort of progressive theologians uh, being you know being invited to speak and then stopped by the by the local ordinary. That did happen. The notion that these bishops or these uh, these bishops were running these colleges in any in any day to day way or operate uh, you know their op daily operations is that's false, and that was a myth. But Hesburgh and the others knew that this was um, this was a, a story that was being told, and they wanted to to you know break away from it. I guess it was a period when Protestant America, still Protestant dominated elite, were very suspicious of Catholicism because it was supposedly this authoritarian institution, and so on. So I could imagine in the late sixties. You know, wanting to have this grand statement of independence on the part of Catholic institutions, but I think it would be it wasn't true. I agree that I mean the bishop they were controlled by religious orders, not by religious orders. And uh, I think a lot of non-Catholics uh, have a misconception that the Catholic Church is like a corporation with the CEO and the Pope is a CEO, and he can hire and fire 
But in fact, it's it's a pretty diffuse organization, and religious orders have a tremendous amount of autonomy. They can really kind of stiff arm a local bishop if they want. I've certainly seen that. Yeah. The again, the idea that these these bishops that the you know were somehow ruling over these schools is is not true. I mean, the the history of the of higher uh, Catholic higher education in the United States is basically this tug of war between uh, the religious orders and the local ordinary. Sometimes it was, you know, you know, we want to set up shop, but we want to have some sort of independence. And on the whole, those religious orders won those battles. They were, in fact, autonomous. However, you know, as we were moving towards the council, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, battles internal to the Catholic Church, there were some times that some of these uh, speakers were blocked. That did, in fact, happen. That was not the ordinary way of things. I look back on the secularization of Catholic higher education as really rooted in the um, collapse of religious orders. So if you have a system where the, the local bishop... He often invited in uh, orders to found universities, and um, that, and then as you, as we were saying, they 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 kind of operate on their own steam based on the orders priorities. But boy, after the council, especially the collapse of uh, the prominent women's orders, it's just hard to see how you could persevere, and as a Catholic institution. So maybe ex corde was always unrealistic in its expectation that you could have. Like a local bureaucrat, the bishop, the chancery, just really ill-equipped uh, to actually have really any influence on a university culture after, I guess I'm babbling here, but you know. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> well, you've kind of seen that at Providence College, right? The sure. strength of the Dominican order is directly correlated to the strength of the Catholic identity. I once gave a talk at a at a at a conference on Catholic higher education, I just said flat out, you cannot have Catholic institutions of higher education without strong religious orders. Lay people can't do it. Okay, there's a couple of... I got, I got attacked, by the way, for making such a <laughs> bald statement. <laughs> there's a couple of layers there. With a lot of, as James Burchell in his, you know, his book, The Dying of the Light, outlines, a lot of the giving up of control by the religious orders, the Catholic, you know, women's religious orders was voluntary. They thought this was in the the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. That mm-hmm. They hand these things over to the laity, and they thought of the universities as, um, you know, quasi public spaces. Uh, this was, you know, this was one of the great disputes. It also is the case, as you say, the actual model, the only model that actually worked, I suppose, was the model that most of the the faculty were religious orders, you know, religious, or very much under the the guidance, or let's say the control of religious orders. And once it moved, and once there wasn't enough, or they didn't want to do it any longer, or they thought it was uh, clericalist to do it, the whole thing began to unravel. And so I think that you you make a very good point, and now I, I think about it, I'm going to have to make it going forward. The, the, the die was probably cast 
uh, in, you know, in the mid-60s, right after the council, that the old model uh, was wholly dependent on something that it could no longer provide. I mean, I really, I, I really saw that. I taught at Creighton University for 20 years, and when I got there in 1990, the generation of Jesuits who, they were all pre I mean, not all, yeah, most of them were pre-Vatican II ordained. And the upper administration was still, they, they no longer staffed at the teaching level and to a significant degree. But all the upper administrators were Jesuits. And we got our first non-Jesuit dean of the college probably in 1998. After uh, I've been there for eight years, and and that marked, you know, they, and what they did is that they would, they would identify secular lay um, allies on the faculty and use them in lower level administrative roles. But uh, it was still very much controlled by the Jesuit dining room more than the faculty senate up until the late 1990s, and then it collapsed and. Uh, and in its place, you know, we had to implement like ordinary faculty governance, so to speak. And then the values of higher ed broadly took over. Yeah, and it was a rear guard action to sort of fight to keep whatever remained of Catholic identity. No, that that's right. That's certainly right. And that is the period that I entered into. The, I entered into the equation around that time, where I saw, you know, in hindsight, I can see that, you know certain fundamental dynamics had changed and they would almost be impossible to undo. But after Ex Corte, it did seem possible, at least in the minds of, you know, a lot of Catholic faculty, to at least reverse course a little bit. And then we discover, and this is really the point of my essay, there wasn't yes. the desire to do so. It wasn't that they couldn't. I mean, perhaps they couldn't have in the end, but they could have done a lot more than they actually did, and for all sorts of different reasons, they refused to. And I, I I agree. I mean, that's it. Seems one of the most interesting things about the essay is your observation about the non-reception of ex corde. So, tell listeners that's a kind of technical uh, theological point, and you you canvass uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles's analysis of what non-reception is and why it can occur. Yeah, the idea is that when a dogma is, is or a teaching is proclaimed, that's step one of the process. The second step is the reception of, the, of that teaching in the, by the body of Christ, by the church whole, not simply the lay people. I'm talking about everybody. Um, and sometimes that doesn't happen because the, the teaching was badly timed or not well articulated. Sometimes it doesn't happen because the the truth of it is too at odds with other cultural factors. And the question is always trying to figure out uh, which one of that is or what, what combination. Uh, the, the example I used was birth control. That was not received in many ways in the Catholic Church. We look back at it now in 2023 and we see that there was, and some saw earlier, John Paul saw it almost immediately, that the problem was uh, it was prophetic. And the fate of prophets is to be rejected. 
uh, and therefore it was not a uh, uh, the non-reception was not evidence against its truth, but actually evidence for the the essentialness of its truth, but the difficulty of it being received. So then the question of ex corde comes along. Uh, I think for sure it was non-received. I think it wasn't received not because the bishops, and I did get some pushback on this, the, it's not that the bishops didn't accept the teaching, accept the importance of Catholic education, but by that time, their plate was simply too full. They had lost too many battles, um, and this was, you know, we're talking the mid-90s, this is before the sex abuse crisis, but even then, there were, there were problems and such. They simply could not take it on. And so it was left to the religious orders that still had at least um, some control over the over the colleges and universities, and in some ways the bishops probably could certainly could have done more to force the issue, uh, but they would have needed a partner to be anywhere close to you know having the chance of success. And many of them made, I guess, the prudential decision that uh, that was not a battle worth. I I can't imagine in the 90s that any bishop wanted to take responsibility for certified a, cert, certifying the Catholic the Catholicity of 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 these these universe colleges and universities. Yeah, so I I can easily imagine a bishop telling his you know the chancellor of the of the diocese um uh let's find a way to implement this so that you know, <laughs> we're not we're not left because he really all he has is a nuclear option, right? So he can declare that such and such a college or university is no longer Catholic, and which has been done in a couple of cases in the United States. But gosh, it's not a very productive option. And so you could see I'll try to work, and I, you you point out with the later follow up in 2012. There's a lot of um, uh, happy clappy talk about dialogue. I always you know, reach for your wallet when somebody uh, is advocating dialogue. <laughs> you, know, like, you know the battle's over. Yeah, th that's true. I mean, most bishops, I mean, for one thing, in almost every case, the tradition had been supporting Catholic education. Going all the way back to the beginnings of the American Episcopate, what a bishop was for was arguing for Catholic education all the way through from primary to high school to college. And so to ask these bishops to change their um, this habit was virtually impossible. Now, mm, that's a good point. It's no longer the case that you find very many bishops who speak in the sort of the happy, clappy way that you refer to in, these days. But that is not the case. But in the 90s, the bishops just couldn't bring themselves. Um, that just wasn't the way they were trained as bishops. That's not what they thought their job was. You know, it's not how they conceived of their job to be, to at least to have a public face of conflict between the bishop and the, uh, the university, uh, other than when they, you know, invite some, you know, they, they give an honorary degree to some abortion, you know, supporting politician when they simply had to to get involved but short of that they wanted to be champions 
Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, what are the key metrics or one of the key exhortations in ex corde concerns uh, faculty? And the, I mean, personnel is policy. And so the document called for a majority of professors being Catholic and not just Catholic in name, but Catholic in conviction and practice. And uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know what your experience has been, but certainly my experience was that there was some lip service paid for to that, but I, it was just, I mean, I could just see that the, the institution just was on autopilot. Faculty hire faculty, and they had no, they were, there was, it would, have, you'd have to move heaven and earth to implement that. Yeah, that that is what drove everyone. That's what drove the the generation. I sort of call them the the Flannery O'Connor generation of Catholic um, professors who went to Fordham or Boston College or Notre Dame, and they were introduced into this interesting enough, relatively new idea of the Catholic intellectual tradition, and they were on fire for it. They spent their entire lives and careers working within it. And then they saw, they had to witness uh, their colleagues get replaced by people with zero interest in that tradition. And that's when a lot of the, and I mentioned this in the, the essay, the letter writing campaigns and the, and the manifestos and the trying to get the board of trustees to, to get involved. I mean, someone could write an entire book on just all those efforts. And as you said, they didn't work. They didn't come close to work. Yeah, I, at, at where I was teaching, the history department had nobody teaching medieval history. Right. And you think, that's like a no-brainer uh, for bringing somebody in who is excited about, about the Catholic aspect of, of you know, any reputable study of history. Uh, but even that seemed like a bridge too far. Instead... The big push uh, when I was there was to uh, non-Western history. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the whole diversity project was uh, already kicking into gear. And so all the pressure was, you're not going to hire someone to teach the Catholic novelists of the 20th century. You're going to hire someone to teach, I don't know, African-American literature or someone to teach uh, Chinese literature or something like that. I mean, that. There's, there's a lot of threads here. One of them was simply this, the, the people who oversaw the dissolution of Catholic higher education came out of a, uh, you know, they were trained and, and sort of came to be, you know, got their vocation at a time when the Catholic Church was, or at least appeared to be, very strong. And so they got used to the idea that we can reach out from a position of strength. And even as, even as all evidence showed that that was not the case, that the Catholic Church was, had been severely weakened, and this was, not a, this was a, a time to regroup as much as anything else, they kept doing it. They kept saying the strength of, you know, what makes us Catholic is that we welcome non-Catholics, as if the, the, the supply of Catholic faculty was assured. And then, and then of course, the internal people, the people who are who are on the ground, the faculty, they look around and say, "Oh, there's Bob, there's Elizabeth. They're, they all retired, all replaced by non-Catholics." And sooner or later, as I said, 
those are the people who run the college. And then after that, to ask a president to um, deny the sociology department their you know progressive um, you know diversitarian type of uh, intellectual. I mean, it could be done, but there's so much blood on the floor uh, with virtually no allies that uh, almost no president wants to do it. In fact, I would say no president wants to do it. To that point, blood on the floor, you point out that, you know, the, the institution's kind of hired on autopilot. Fast forward to summer 2020, Black Lives Matter, and suddenly Catholic institutions kick into high gear and you have a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer on every hiring committee. You've got close supervision, functional quotas. Uh, and, you know, so if the institution really wants to do something, it is willing to spill blood and make, you know, a significant cohort of faculty upset and, and frustrated in order to transform the institution. Yeah, there wouldn't be nearly as much blood because, you know, after the George Floyd, people were, you know, deathly afraid of challenging DEI. But the the point you make is is fine. Is I mean, normally, your typical Catholic college or university has a vice president for mission integration or mission and ministry, as we have here at Barbersville, and a vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, it's very simple. Try to figure out which one of those those uh, offices have the more power, and they have the power because they have the legitimacy established not only because most of the faculty support this, and the ones who don't are uh, cowed, uh, but also most of the rhetoric coming from the presidents and the board of trustees and all of that is about DEI. Uh, at my college, I often, you know, you know, Providence College is a unique kind of place. We have the, you know, we have the the um, Saint Joseph Province of the Dominican Order here. We are a different kind of place than most, but still, the idea of a president getting up and talking with the same fervor and institutional commitment and, as you say, institutional teeth um, for mission hiring as you would with DEI is virtually inconceivable. Uh, it could be done sooner or later if the college is going to stay you know, sort of Catholic. Uh, it's going to have to be done. Uh, but that's, even at a place like us, I don't know about some of these other colleges I've mentioned, um, it would be a very heavy lift. And the colleges who have lost any sort of real urgency at all with Catholic identity, just look at their websites. DEI is all over the place. Mission is hired in some little paragraph about the boundaries. Or, no, mission is translated into DEI terms. Yes, yes, that's right. When it's operationalized, it said, you know, it's about welcoming and our diversity. And the thing is, what's so frustrating, of course, is the Catholic Church has a quite, especially Catholic higher education, has an excellent historical record on welcoming diverse populations. Uh, it is also true that a lot of our colleges and universities have become enclaves of um, upper middle class, third generation college kids from, you know, the leafy suburbs. And there are some actual challenges, some actual issues that need to be discussed. 
and dealt with, but at the same time, they could all be the the Catholic tradition has more than enough resources on its own to to um, to develop a, you know a workable plan for making sure that when you when you introduce a, a, a new wave of first generation students that they don't feel like aliens on these campuses, which often happens. That's a real thing. Bottom line seems to be that whatever American higher education prizes and praises, Catholic universities will prize and praise. You know, I think it was possible to see, I mean, I think it was actually quite true that if you went on to the, you know, Fordham campus in 1960, that the philosophy was different. I mean, that what the classes that the students took were different than what they were taking at Yale or at Columbia. I know at Creighton, until the, after the council, every student was required to take metaphysics, moral philosophy, and uh, natural philosophy, which is kind of an apologetics class. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a pretty distinctive curriculum. In, uh, that's not John Dewey in American Pragmatism. Let's put it no, that that's right. There was an essay in First Things uh, written by uh, your predecessor, Jody Bottom, which I've never been able to locate. Uh, I think it's sort of an iconium to one of his professors, his metaphysics professor. And he discusses the value added by those philosophy courses. He says this is what was distinctive of a Catholic education which gave Catholic people who went to these schools a leg up. It wasn't the theology. Most people understand that the theology, which often had less requirements, where a Providence College, we weren't, we're not unique. We had eight, eight. So each semester you took philosophy. I think you only took six uh, theology. I think Creighton, where I taught, didn't have a theology department until after the right. council. So philosophy carried all of the, uh, the the work of of that kind of formation. And you and you can see. I remember. Um, I who was it? That was Charlie Curran, my old teacher, who talked about a uh, a president or a CEO of of General Motors getting into some argument, and he he went to a Catholic. I don't know where it was. Maybe it was Notre Dame. And he was making these sort of precise philosophical arguments about the issue. And that was, that. I mean, the loss of that is incalculable. And it would almost be impossible to get it back. But I do think that it's sort of a, it's sort of a forgotten story that what was so intellectually exciting, although I'm sure kind of, you know, drudgery like every other aspect of undergraduate is, you know, learning seems to the students at the time. Uh, that was those were real intellectual skills that distinguished a graduate from from Catholic uh, a Catholic college or university uh, from their peers and gave them a leg up this sort of ability to think in these sort of clear, this clear way. It's a it's a it was a certain version of Thomistic philosophy yes. that allowed you to have a conception of the whole which is very much missing from higher education today. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I, remember, I, I don't remember who said it, but the real loss of Catholic identity was not when they reduced the philosophy or the theology requirements, but when they said, take two anything. 
<laughs> so they were no longer this sort of ratio, this sort of, you know, you would progress from one course to the other. And again, a lot, there was a lot to say of why that decision was made. When I showed up at Providence College around almost 25 years ago, the older Dominicans were very much, uh, very much tied to that older, that older way of teaching. And they blamed the historical method, which makes a lot of sense when you, you think back on it, which was the idea that, no, what we ought to do is expose you to the history. This was all part of the Catholic intellectual tradition as well. Let's tell you the story of the, of the Catholic Church's encounter with you know, Western culture and such, instead of train you in a particular way of, of reasoning. Hmm. The way forward. You end your piece suggesting that there is a way. I mean, it's not despair is never a a, 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 a way to actually sort of move forward in life. No. <laughs> so what, what what are the bright spots? Well, as I, I mentioned, a few of the uh, of the schools that are trying it, uh, hardly any of them are mid level, or at least very few of them are. So when you're talking about the the larger uh, schools where you can get a business degree or STEM or these other kinds of nursing degrees and such, you have to think of those places within the university, which are very intentional and supported by the president or you know, the provost or whoever, uh, to carry out this um, vision of Catholic education. Uh, so you're talking about Catholic studies Well, programs. yeah, Catholic studies, it's a strange word because you're not actually studying Catholicism. What you're mm. doing is Catholic education. That's what you're actually doing, and you're just calling it, I guess it's another use of the word. It's an adjective, you know, Catholic studies, studies that are Catholic, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, and so you see these, and, and they're springing up uh, partly because they're, easy, they're like sports or buildings. It's easy to get someone to give money to them. And most, most Catholic colleges still, even in 2023, would like to say something positive about mission that goes beyond you know, service, learning, and maybe DEI kinds of things. And so it really, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a, a moment in the history of Catholic higher education in the United States that should be seized upon, uh, where uh, each of these schools have a little, I call them an island. People didn't like that because they thought an island in the sea of heresy. That's not what I mean. I mean a part of the school of the school which is intentional and focused on the the mission as it regards the education it offers to students. A lot of these uh, places not only form a community of scholars from across the campus, the, you know, the Catholic ones or the super Catholic friendly, I guess. Um, but also students, and they form a, a little experience within the college, uh, which you know is in a reflection of some way of uh, John Paul's vision next quarter. It's the biggest problem. I was just I was just speaking to a an international group of Catholic uh, studies. It's not really an international thing. It's more of a cap. It's more of a United States thing. And one of the things that came up is it's the you get often the presidents will support the creation of these these entities 
but you need the faculty senate or you know whatever the governance of the of the place is to approve them as departments and such and that is becoming that's at this moment that's the great challenge a lot of these places have funding they have support uh what they're offering to students is attractive to a number of this you know a, a decent number of the students enough to sustain the, the project but still a, a good deal of resistance from the uh the uh, the, the operations of the college which hires and forms academic entities capable of hiring. So I guess the idea here is that you can do something, but it has to be under the sign of choice as an option. In the old days of marching students through a distinctively Catholic curriculum, it's not really realistic for all but a few. There are some you know, recusant schools that preserve that tradition, but you're saying that for the mainstream Catholic institution, it has to be something that a student can opt into and faculty can opt into rather than a, a university-wide. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I think that's what it's going to be. It's, that's, it's a midpoint between the, you know, the professor who happens to be, you know, this Catholic professor who has a few students around him or her, you know, but the rest of the college is, you know, whatever it's going to be, more secular. Uh, it's a midpoint between that and... Um, it's a midpoint in the sense that this is an institutional entity within the college. Mm. And I think that's the that's why I connected to a sort of a sort of a truncated but real reception of ex corde. And I think these things need to grow. I think they will grow. My own experience at Providence College is where um we're we're not finding it hard at all to attract students as a as a minor or a second major. And I think this is true across the board, especially with those programs that uh, are distinct enough from the other intellectual offerings at the college. I think students will gravitate towards them. Uh, it's it's a great model, and I it, you know it used to be people would argue against the Catholic studies model because it was giving up on the institutional conversion. And if my essay attempts to do anything else, it's that. That moment has passed, at least for our lifetimes. This is a new moment, and uh, we ought to seize it. From your lips to God's ears, thanks for being on uh, the podcast, Jim. 